0: From the Church of the Nazarene and Mesoamerica Genesis, you're listening to The Worthless Servants Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back to The Worthless Servants Podcast. I am Scott Armstrong. It is good to be back with you. Uh, We have kind of a different plan for today. Uh, We're going to be talking about a topic that's very, very important. First of all, before we dive in, I need to introduce some other servants that are here with me. To my left, AJ Fry. Hey, guys. To his left, Emily Armstrong. Hey everyone. Also to her left, I guess I'm going to go left. To her left, <laughs> Natalie Franco.
2: Hey, how are you?
1: And to my right, Chelsea Fry.
2: Fun facts with Chelsea. Fun fact <laughs> the island of Barbados gets its name from the bearded fig tree. That covers the (laughs) island.
1: The island of Barbados. It's
2: a bearded thing. The Portuguese were the first ones to see the island and gave the name Barbados. Nice. Uh,
1: well, w- this is a really great fun fact because we have somebody with us. Thank you for taking this into account because this is a perfect segue. And uh we also have as an invited guest somebody from Barbados live right now with us, Reverend <laughs> Dario Richards. Not bearded, yeah. by the way. <laughs> not beard- not bearded that I've
0: seen. <laughs> bearded Dario Richards. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a true a true fact, <laughs> <laughs> See, my sources are not good. <laughs> so Internet she, for the win.
1: <laughs> she sometimes shares fun facts, and we're like, "I'm pretty sure that's not true," and she <laughs> <laughs> she tries to defend them. Wow. So we're not going to dive into Barbados necessarily today, but I would like to say Pastor Dario has served with us in global missions uh, and in what we're doing with Genesis in the Caribbean field uh, for really about seven to eight years. His wife, Linda, they have a wonderful boy, Caleb, and uh, they're just serving the Lord on a local district and even field level. And honestly, we invited Dario on uh, because we are going to touch on a topic that's super important. Um, It's... Very important. And some of us in this room, I have to say myself, are really just now in the last several years recognizing how important it is. That's embarrassing for me to say. But we're going to touch on the topic of race and reconciliation, racial racial reconciliation, especially. And so Dario uh, has been a key person for Emily and for me and uh, kind of just having talks and understanding and listening. And so it's really good to have you here, brother. Thank you for, for uh, being with us.
3: Yeah, it's good to be here.
1: Thank you. Good to see you again. And let's kind of let's kind of talk about this. Obviously, uh, just as a little bit of introduction, this has become a hot topic. And I hope that it's not just something that that lasts a few months. But I hope that this really is an ongoing conversation Uh, But especially it has come to the surface because of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And um, honestly, years ago, years before this, there have been so many other names, people, real people that have uh, suffered, that have died at the hands of police, uh, at the hands of others. And so this is this is a key topic right now, but uh, it's not going to be the last time that we address this. So let's kind of talk through this a little bit. Daria, we want you to kind of have the platform, especially in this time. And so I'm going to give you the kind of kind of the first word. Uh, what have been your reactions to the events that have uh, transpired in the last couple months? Uh, how are you processing through this?
3: Uh, I think, um, again, as you see, it is this is one of many, you know, so. So I think the shock effect is a lot of people are just it's just like a trigger. Um, for many persons across the globe, but it has been a continuous experience of many Black persons. Um, so, again, it's obvious for me, just another one of those, you know, again, like, why does it keep happening? But I think more than that, I have be, I began to develop a type of love-hate relationship with all that's happening. You know, on one hand, I love the fact that there's a country called America that has the capacity to trigger a global and response to an issue. You know, if this had happened in any other country, I don't think we would have the response that we're currently having. So you have this country that has that type of platform, that type of influence that can mobilize a global response to this critical issue. So I love that. But on the flip side, I kind of hate the fact that if it doesn't happen there, then we don't respond to our own issues here. You know, we have racism right here in the Caribbean. Uh, we have racist issues and people dying because of the color of their skin in other parts of the world. Um, sometimes in even more racist countries than America. Um, but we don't have that type of response. But it, it's only because it happened in this particular place. So I have a love hate relationship with that. I also develop a love hate relationship with our activism. <laughs> you know, I love the fact now that it's on the minds of people that people are talking about it. Um, that there is, you know, their movements and their chants and their, their protests. So I love that it is a hot topic, uh, but I, I really don't like the way that many of us are engaging, or, or should I say how activism is now designed? You know, you're an activist if you post on Facebook and make declare Black Lives Matter. That doesn't make you an activist, you know. Mm. It just means that you have to catch on to the latest trend. And in standard human fashion, that trend will eventually change, and will you continue to be an activist uh, sometimes it feels even like a bit of tokenism you know it's a hot topic, so people want to say something on it um so so I don't like especially from our perspective as a church sometimes um I feel as though you know we can, we can have common enemies with the world, you know, ourselves and the world could be fighting common enemies, but definitely toward uh, much different outcomes. You know, our goal must always be, how does the outcome of my activism, the outcome of my engagement, leads to the glory of God, as opposed to the desires of the world. And I think that in our activism, sometimes we could become deceived because we just jump on the bandwagons of what the common culture says we should do. Um, so for me, um, it has been a love hate tension. Glad the conversation is happening. I'm glad that light is being shone upon it. But also thinking deeply about how do we really maximise the opportunity to ensure that true change really does happen. And this isn't just another trend in in, in trending in in human you know, human activity that will just drift to me tomorrow. So that has been my general response and feeling to what's been happening. Why,
1: why do you think that it has grabbed the attention of the United States and the world in a different way? This stuff was happening and has been happening for years, decades, centuries, right? Even literally the George Floyd, I can't breathe I think of 2014, Eric Garner said the same words, you know, why do you think it has grabbed the attention in the way that it has? And it seems like, I don't know if you would agree, but it seems like the dialogue is different this time.
3: Yeah, I think, I think there, there was a combination of things, right? I think that um, America over the last couple of years has become a very tense environment, because, and it's mostly it's mostly political driven. You know, there's a there's a certain feeling, a certain tension that has emerged because of what has been happening in the political sphere. So I think that racial tension, racial issues, um, issues of injustice has risen to the top of America in a way over these last couple of years that it had not before, because of leadership realities. So you have that tension already happening. And then you have these three consecutive events of clear injustice happening, you know, of, of what people will clearly speak to as to be, what people will probably see is a direct result of what the temperature, the context, and the culture of America feels like, just this um, oppressive injustice um, kind of reality happening. Then you have these three consecutive things happening, and of these three two are caught on camera, And the last one is up close and personal. So you can't ignore it, you know. Um, Ahmad, you you have questions. Oh, you know, oh, what did he do before, you know. Uh, Was he really attacking the guy with the gun, you know. What happened here, you know. Let's wait until the court case happened. But now for eight minutes, you are sitting and you are watching a policeman kneeling on the neck of a black man. And people are literally asking and pleading and begging that you can't ignore this. You know it reminds me of the Emmett till story from years ago I um, made his mother you know ensure that his face was in the newspaper so what happened you, you see it and and you can't you can't you can't go oh no you know you can't go it doesn't matter what happened before you know it doesn't matter what he did prior to this you can clearly see something is wrong here so we think that context that's happening in the political sphere um coupled with these three consecutive events just sparked it um so i think you know those combination of factors is really um contributed
0: i think you have a very good point personally i never would have considered myself a racist person but only after this one have i really started to investigate in myself like mm-hmm. deep down in myself what are the what are the prejudices that i have that have been ingrained in me by my culture and how can i combat those because I think I've heard of all these other stories in the past and it was just a story. It was sad. It was really sad and it, and it hurt me, but there's this tendency that I guess my side, the white man's side of the story is to just see these things and hear about them in the news. And then when something bigger comes along, when the next news cycle comes, you forget about those things. And that's, I'm guilty of that um, just following that news cycle that news trend and I think you have a good point like what's different about this one is that there was so much coverage about it there is so much in your face that you can't ignore it anymore and it's sad that it had to come to this point it's sad that I had to get it had to get this in your face for for our side of the of the coin to actually see what's going on and and to realize it.
4: Dario, could I ask you um, from like the church perspective? I know that something I've been uh, just struggling, struggling, I think is the right word of I want to know how you feel when you're seeing all of the comments on social media from people that seem like they're being antagonistic to what's going on, and, and when that comes out of the church specifically, how does that make you feel, or how are you processing through some of those things? Yeah, you <laughs> know,
1: that's a good question.
2: <laughs> and maybe and you don't have an answer,
4: and that's okay if you don't have an answer, too, because some of these things are unanswerable, you know. I, I
1: think he has an answer, <laughs> but he's wondering how to say it. Right.
3: Yeah. How, how it makes me feel is, is in, in, one, in the back of my mind, in some cases, like, I'm, I'm actually glad it's it. Because the church has a historical way of hiding prejudice and racism um, behind professionalism, you know. So, or behind, or behind um, qualification, you know. So, so there's this general feeling, you know. Like we we have this running joke about how um, when the whites came to the Caribbean, because obviously the gospel in many ways were brought by white missionaries. Mm. They brought Jesus to save us, but they're witness to fix us, you know, Uh, but, but they wouldn't say that, you know, it always comes across in, um, this is, we have the experience. We have been doing this for so long, you know, we need to help you to get here. And they will never voice their prejudice or racism. But when something like this happens, then all of a sudden you begin to hear the hearts of people, right? You begin to really hear, you know, what they're thinking behind the scenes, how they truly feel. And in some cases, they even shot themselves. You know, so you realize they come back, and they didn't even know that they thought or they or they or they felt like this. So for me, because my my perspective from the beginning has always been, my hope is that this leads to reconciliation. I'm not in the space of, um, I'm not searching for supremacy over whites. I am not on a revenge mission. I'm not as a, am I'm, I'm not on. A, I'm on. I, I told you so. You know, we already knew that you are this. I'm not on that. I am on. Where do we go with this for the glory of God? And the hope is reconciliation. So when I see this, more than hurt or more than disgust, is more like, okay, good. Now we can actually start to fix this problem because mm. you are making it clear that the problem exists. Mm. Not with others, but with you, <laughs> you know, so let's, let's begin the conversation there. So, so that's the general feeling that I get of it. Um, I think what bothers me the most are the persons who, who, who have these, you know, antagonistic negative responses, but also feel to acknowledge that, you know, okay, this is a problem. That's where um, my challenge comes.
1: You mentioned something pretty important, and I think there would be a lot of evangelicals. Uh, we're a podcast especially focused on the Church of the Nazarene, although not all our listenership is from the Church of the Nazarene. But I think there would be a lot of people that would say, oh, well, I mean, this is a societal issue, but it's not in the church. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think we need to touch on this. We're a podcast that doesn't doesn't just talk about the entire world and society, we talk about the implications for missions and for the church. And so let me just ask, and I mean, let's get, let's get into it a little bit. How have you experienced prejudice, uh, even racism, if we want to use that word, but within church context or uh, the structure of the church?
3: Uh, Let me, let me give you a story. Uh, I'll start with Linda's story and it will evolve from there. When my wife, Linda, um, when she was younger, she wanted to be a missionary. Like, you know, obviously back then, NMI was defined by all of these missionary stories, hearing about what's happening across the globe. um, And there wasn't really an example of the Caribbean missionary, as was told in these stories within the Church of the Nazarene. So there were other organizations, you know, the WIWAMs, these were opportunities made available, but within the denomination, there wasn't a clear picture. So so somebody asked Linda, what does she want to be? A pastor actually asked Linda, a black pastor asked Linda, what does she want to, to be when she grew up? And she said that she wants to be a missionary because her goal was to do medicine, become a doctor, and then use those skills on the mission field. And when she told the black pastor she wanted to be a missionary, he laughed. But it wasn't a chuckle. It was like a, you know, you cannot be serious type of laugh. And then he said to her, Linda, you are a woman and you are black and from the Caribbean. You can never be a missionary. Wow. So, obviously, um, you know, I don't want to call it naivety, being naive, but Obviously, Linda's commitment was not. That can't be true. You know, like it can't be a case that I cannot be a missionary because of these two dynamics. Um, and as we, you know, she grew older, we went to college. We started. Um, we started. We started dating. We came into um, started to do call to serve again, um, leading this missional uh, component of the region. Still with the strong belief that being missionaries. Being full time missions can be a real experience for us that we can actually do this. You know, we can be, we can be, we can be supported. Like we hear the stories of people being supported, and because it was a real passion, you know, it wasn't money driven. Obviously, I don't think people become missionaries to get rich. <laughs> you
0: know,
3: <laughs> uh, but in this entire process, it always began to feel as though. And, and for me, I am not, I am not the type. I, I, I am more on the optimistic side of life. So I don't, even when things happen where I perceive them to be racist, racist or prejudiced, I don't, that's not my first take on it. I give people the benefit of the doubt. And in the process, we began to realize at every point when any effort was, made you know, or when to really do this thing, that there seemed to be another loophole, you know, another turnaround, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean Linda will tell you all types of, you know, all of these assumptions that people have about why a black person wants to be a missionary. Oh, you're just looking uh, for a visa to get to the states, you know, you're just looking for opportunity to travel, like like all of these things that you hear coming, and then all of the rules and regulations that apply to us that are clearly not for other people. You know, we have to do this, you know, you you can't be a missionary and have another job. It was pastoring at the time. And then remember that somebody had told me that, you know, I needed to completely resign and then dive into this thing full time. And we did that. We completely left pastoral ministry. We were not doing anything. I contacted the head office again. What do we do now? Then there was another loophole, you know? <laughs> it's like, so at some point in time, Linda actually long gave up before me because Linda kept remembering that story. Then they kept remembering, this guy told me, I'm from the Caribbean, I can't be a missionary. I have tried, I'm done. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, Nah, man, Linda, that's not the truth. It cannot be, it cannot be that because we are from the Caribbean, we are black, that we can't have the same opportunity. But then eventually, it felt that felt the reality, you know, <laughs> and it felt it, it didn't only feel so then on a missional um, front, on you know, just the opportunity to do missions. And the truth is, we really just wanted to do it because we felt that there was momentum happening. We had been to countries in the region, especially, remember, Dominica would never leave my mind. We were in Dominica doing um, a call to serve, like a type of envisioning, and it was a Kalenago. There's a, a more, there's an indigenous, uh, indigenous people to, to Dominica. Uh, we, you know, we sent out this invitation, this call to missions. And uh, one of the girls walked to me, I said to me, she can never be a missionary because she's a Kalenago, she cannot be. Is it is impossible for me to be a missionary. She said that to me, you know? So she was talking to me and she was convinced that she could not be a missionary. That it just was not something she could do because of her um, race, because of her ethnicity. But even more than that, for me, when, when Lena and I were experiencing this reality, experiencing these challenges, um, having the conflict, that was happening, and obviously it, it brought a level of conflict between me and her as well, because she came quick to the decision. Uh, Dario, this is I done. I was at this. I was still at the place. No, Lynn, this can't be the reality. This must be possible, you know. Um, but then I began to sit back. We begin to observe how our denomination operates in the region, you know, um, whether it be how how the two regions were merged or how the fact that on original scale. Um, There was a point where all, or at least 90% of all the regional directors are North American, you know? And then if persons are added there, you get an addition of somebody from Central America where there's a real barrier, uh, where there's a real language barrier, there's a cultural barrier. Um, There there are more barriers and there are similarities. And you begin to see how we are represented, how our voices are considered, how we are perceived It's almost as though Um, there's this perception that we cannot lead ourselves. Or you measure or judge the full weight of the capacity of what the character leader can achieve based on one or two individuals or based on prior experiences. Um, So there's this embedded, you know, prejudice assumption to what we can or what we cannot do. And it could be based one on previous experiences or two. Just sometimes this attitude that we we, we really experience where um, persons come in thinking that they're here to save us because we cannot help ourselves. We don't have the capacity to help ourselves. So you are the savior. And, and those are just some of the real things that we have experienced in our own journey here. And
1: I think we've walked a lot, we've walked with you through this and I've, I've been defensive as sometimes we've, we've talked, you know, and I've said, no, it can't be that way. And, and I think as you originally started your story, you know, you w- I I want to say, oh, that, that crazy pastor, he just didn't know, you know, and, but, it's, but really, I mean, sure, he should not have discouraged someone feeling a missions call, right? But there's something more systemic. And we even have, you know, that is a, a word that's become uh, quite important in these days. But I've started to realize, you know, this your voice needs to be heard. It's it's just Mm -hmm. it's just interesting how in the last few years you were so close so many times to becoming a missionary designated as a missionary. And then it did not happen. Now, whatever the reasons were like, we can't deny that feeling and the perception. And and we can't fail to investigate and evaluate our own selves and to say, Why did this happen? Why were, did there seem to be way more hoops for a person from one culture, from one field than from another field or from another culture? And those are things that have really been hard for us as global missions coordinators, as, as, uh, you know, regional missionaries to try to address. And I want to thank you for helping us to address that.
5: Yes, right. And I think it is not only something that happens, you know, in other countries, but also in our region. And I can say something that happened in my family. My grandmother, she used to said, I love my grandmother a lot, but (laughs) I mean, I need to be honest. And she used to say, I'm not racist, but I don't like black people. Mm -hmm. And it is just a way to like put makeup on it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there is racist in in that, you know, Mm phrase. But she was trying to to make everybody to understand she was not. I think the same is happening with the church in some way. We said we are not racist, but somehow like we treat in a different way people with a different skin. And I've seen that, especially with the mission groups, when this white missionary comes to the Dominican Republic. Yes, everybody is so happy. And it's the same with um, kind of the same with a missionary with different color of, us, of the skin, but it is a little bit different. We see like it is not the same preference. Mm. So I think mm-hmm. th- that's, it's happening in the church. We we say, no, we are not racist, but we can still see the difference.
2: Mm.
0: Interesting. Because we treat, we treat people mm-hmm. of a different skin color differently,
5: yeah.
0: even though they may have the same job.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, Something that I have been curious about and would like to ask this group of people is um, when I'm scrolling on social media right now, it is filled with white people recognizing the fact that they have racist tendencies in their heart that they weren't previously aware of, which is great. But on the flip side of it, I'm seeing some negative feedback to that of like these people waking up but they're receiving feedback that says, well, you should have already been awake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that's helpful. I um, I think we need to acknowledge that there are people that are waking up a little bit behind some of the rest of us. And this should be an ongoing forever lifestyle of us recognizing and evaluating our biases and our tendencies. And so, um, Dario, I'd love to hear from you. Somebody that is just now recognizing my whole life, I've been trained in this mindset and now I'm aware of it. What are some steps that they could take to bring reconciliation between themselves and the race and even into the church?
3: I just give two separate responses. I want to comment on the on the first with um when I think it was Natalie Shannon about her grandmother. One of the most racist experiences we have had in missions was in Nicaragua. We were there on we were there on a mission trip. Uh, We were placed in this community and it was obvious like for two weeks, we only saw one other black person outside of the group, but they had a Wi-Fi in the park. So we used to all go to the park together so that nobody would be separated and then come back together. And one day, another be back, the police just pulled up next to us. They stopped. Nobody in the group could speak Spanish. So we had Genesis. She's from Nicaragua as well. She was interpreting from us. And as a team leader, asking, what is she saying? And the policeman is shouting, he's screaming at the top, why are these Africans here? Why are these Africans here? And we're like, um, we're, we're not from Africa, <laughs> you know, we're from <laughs> we're just over in the Caribbean, you know, he's like, no, we this and uh, what they did, they made us get in the line, we had to walk back to our house, and we had to get we had to get blank pieces of paper and write numbers on them and take pictures like a mugshot. For the police to have them collected and stored um, at the police station. So, so, but again, what we did is, and I think it, I think it's a Caribbean thing. We, we began to make a joke out of it. So while they're outside taking mug shots, we are inside singing and dancing. And by the end, they were asking for some of our food and you know for us to sing to them because of how we approached the, the the you know how we approached the what was happening. So so I agree, even in, the, even in the Caribbean, we go to some Caribbean countries as missionaries and the reception is radically different to if it was a white North American team. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it isn't just, you know, this thing that white people do is also something that we have come to believe about ourselves. But we also have to understand that that is because of the history of racism, the history of being convinced throughout the years that, that there is another who is better than Right, um, as it relates to the question, that I think Chelsea asks about you know, you know, what can we do to these people who are not waking you know, up? I think my my position is always to go to the biblical position from both ends. I think Jesus's response in Matthew, in Matthew nine, when he looked out upon the upon the crowds, is really a position that both blacks and whites must take. You know how Jesus saw the crowds. When Jesus looked on the crowds, they were probably thieves. They were probably murderers. They were probably criminals. You know, they were probably uh, racists out there. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say um, that when Jesus looked at them, he saw thieves, robbers, and murderers. The Bible says that he saw sheep without a shepherd. You know, he he categorized them as a particular type of people who had a particular need. And why I love him saying they were sheep without a shepherd is because he was a good shepherd. And uh, he too saw himself as a potential solution to the need that he saw in this scroll. And I say that to say that we must see people for who they are and for where they are at, right? Um, the reason why a black person will have a negative response or a negative feel to a white person now waking up to the reality of racism is because racism did not start yesterday. You know, this is this is this is four hundred plus years. You know, of consistent. It, it, it hasn't been that. You know, there have been breaks. There have been major events. You know, civil rights movement and you know, um, you know the the actual breakaway from slavery, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But in the black person's mind, like, how could you not see this for so long? That's a reality that's on their heart. If you don't acknowledge that, then. You just start being insensitive again, but from a different perspective. You know, it's like me hurting my wife, and just because I say sorry, just because I say sorry, and she doesn't immediately respond the way that I want, I get upset because she hasn't forgiven me. No, you know, just because I say sorry doesn't lead to automatic forgiveness. There may be action and activity that must not follow that sorry um, for it to be real to her, especially if it is that I am apologizing for something that I have been doing for my entire marriage and she has complained about. You know, that's a, that's a different, all she's sharing again is a, is a, you know, it's just words to try to pacify the situation. So, so from the white perspective, you've got, you got to see that, you got to recognize um, that people would struggle to believe that for the last, for the hundreds of years, this thing has been happening. And only here and now you see that. So you got to, Acknowledge that that's a Christian perspective so that you can be, you can have, you can have um, sympathy, you can be sensitive, and you can also have empathy and understanding where this anger is coming from or where this frustration is coming from. But then from the Black perspective, from my perspective as well, I also have a Christian responsibility uh, to realize that, I mean, we are human, (laughs) you know, Uh, and that the root of racism is sin. As sin is not sin is a pick and choose race you know it, that white people were sinful from birth and not me you know there are sins too that I carry there are things that I do wrong as well um that I that I should have woken up to much earlier than I did the difference between this sin and, and your sin is that your sin has historically been hurting me um, so I have a much more um, I have a much more negative response to it than if it was a sin that was hurting anybody. And so I think on both ends that we need to look on this demographic, look on this crowd, and see them for who they are and where they are. Because we, we must see them as Jesus saw them. Because it was only when Jesus saw them for who they were that he was able to feel what he felt. You know, Because he saw sheep without a shepherd, then the Bible says that he had compassion on them because he saw them correctly. And I think that's important for us. If we see each other correctly, then we can be more compassionate. Uh, we can be more sensitive and more purposeful in our responses. Um, so I think the steps that I would say is that we need to see people correctly, not just through the culture or through the media. Um, I have a real problem with the media telling Christians what to be aware of or what to be awoken to or how to be awoken. Um, it, it was, you know, and it goes back to that point of having similar enemies with difficult ones. Then you can see one of the biggest abortion agencies in the world uh, where post-Black Lives Matter and we value the life of the Black person. But you kill more Black babies than any other person in the whole world. You know, like, common enemies, but definitely heading toward different results. That's why the media cannot shape our awareness. The media can't shape our walkness. I can't just respond because this is how the culture responding. Christ expects a particular response from me. And that is one of truth and grace, grace and truth. And I have to give that to you in the expectation that you give that to me as well. Um, So see correctly. And as we see correctly, we can feel correctly. You know, so we see what Jesus saw. We feel what Jesus feel. And then we have the opportunity to do what Jesus did. And what Jesus did in that same portion is he began by prayer. He began by commanding. Pray, you know, ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. You know, this is no... uh, Quote unquote mission field. This is a place that deep reconciliation is necessary, not just for the sake or the purpose of two races living at peace again, but with the understanding that I strongly believe that the fulfillment of the plan and the purposes of God for his church cannot be, cannot be achieved in silos. Our reconciliation is important for the purposes of God to be fulfilled in the way that he has intended. There's a value that you bring that I don't bring. There's a value that I bring that you don't bring. And if we remain divided, we can't have these things working together for the glory of God. So the reconciliation is beyond me feeling better about how you view me as a black person, but it goes much deeper than just acknowledging me it goes acknowledging me, not just that my life matters, but my ideas matter. You know, my, my, my sense of purpose matters. My quote-unquote uh, influence and leadership and the skills that I bring matter. And yours matter as well. How do people be together to do what it is that God has called us to do? So if we see what Jesus saw, we feel what Jesus felt, and we did what Jesus do. Uh, command people to pray, but more than that actually begin to mobilize them into the field and to become voices of change voices of truth uh voices of soul and light i think we we begin the process there but we've got we, we must see clearly from the beginning uh see with empathy yeah
4: it's so good dario you should be a preacher <laughs> Hey, Scott asked me if I could uh, just bring a quote of hope and uh, what has come to my mind as I've been listening to you is just to read a few verses that Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter two, because I think it's a good way that we as the church need to respond to this uh, conversation. Paul writes to the church, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the hope Mm -hmm. that we share as the church. That is why this conversation is so important, because... We do have consolation from love, from sharing in the spirit, from compassion, from from sympathy and unity. And uh, and that's the way we accomplish it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm leaving this conversation hopeful. And honestly, what you said, Dario, is so important. I mean, Mm -hmm. black lives mattering, any lives mattering is such that's such a low bar. I mean, okay. literally, we need to get to the point, and the church is the is the one that could lead us there. You yes. know,
4: is supposed to, to lead us. Yes, there. <laughs> to get, yeah.
1: to get to the point of saying, oh no, it's not just that you matter; it's that you make me better. Yes, mm-hmm. like I cannot be fully me without you. That's right. Yeah. And my my ethnicity is not fully what it needs to be without you and your ethnicity and what you bring to the table or your language or, or whatever, you know? And I I feel like we need to continue this conversation, maybe framing it even in uh, the word ethnocentrism. So let's do like another episode in the future on that. Would you be able to join us Dario for that, that episode as well? (laughs)
5: Oh
0: oh man,
1: Well, this is good. Uh, Emily, if, Uh, People would like to, and we would love, especially, I mean, we've asked this after every episode, but if people would like to join the conversation, where can they do that?
4: Yeah, find us on Facebook, Worthless Servants Podcast, and you can find this episode and everything else that we've ever produced on www.mesoamericagenesis.org right underneath the podcast tab.
1: Awesome. Okay. Well, we are the Worthless Servants, and I'm Scott Armstrong.
0: I'm AJ Fry.
4: I'm Emily Armstrong. I'm Natalie Franco. And I'm Chelsea Fry.
1: And from Barbados, Barry
3: Dario Richards. Richards.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll come back with Dario uh, for another episode and kind of continue this conversation. Praise the Lord. Thank you for, for this time, and uh, we'll talk with you next time. For more information, visit us on Facebook or at MesoamericanGenesis.org.